Welcome to the 68th episode of the New Ventures podcast. I am your host, Sanjoy Sanyal, the founder of Regan Paradise, a boutique climate finance firm and a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. Along with my co-host, Professor Jaydi Prabhu, I host this series to understand the impact of climate change on food security. Hi everyone, my name is Jadipi Prabhu. I'm a professor of marketing at the Cambridge Judge Business School. My area of interest is innovation, more specifically frugal innovation, which is how to do more and better with less. I also have through that an interest in food and food security and food innovation issues. Our guest for today is Edward Zulu, in charge of monitoring and evaluation in Comaco a social enterprise supporting wildlife conservation and smallholder farmers in Zambia. Welcome, Edward. Thank you very much, uh, Sanjoy, for this opportunity to, to join you on your podcast. Edward, thank you so much for joining us. Could you tell us a little bit about your organization, Comaco? Comaco is in full its community markets for conservation. Comaco is a registered community-based organization in Zambia, working with 253,000 farmers across three landscapes. That is in the Luongo Valley, around the Kafue ecosystem. So this organization called Comaco has got broadly, I would say, three main goals. One is to conserve the soils. Two conserve the forests, three, to conserve wildlife. Around all these three objectives, it is anchored on the farmer's welfare because our approach has been centered around the farmer in the sense that for us to achieve these objectives of conserving these three elements, it all goes down to the training and building capacity of a farmer. So Comaco works around the farmer and farmer cooperatives. In our operations, we focus in addressing these challenges that are currently facing this household with an objective to improve food security and livelihoods in these households. Edward, a little bit about yourself. I head the monitoring and evaluation department for, for Comaco. I've been with Comaco for 10 years now. My background I hold an undergraduate in statistics and a master's in project management. I oversee eight staff spread across across the landscape, uh, working in uh, about 15 districts, currently in three provinces under the project, dealing with 253,000 uh, farmers under the program. So I oversee all the monitoring and evaluation works across different projects that are under the Kumako program, all that strive and work towards achieving the Kumako objectives and goals. Edward, that's really interesting. Before we jump in, can you tell us a little bit about Zambia and the places that you work in? Zambia is a predominantly agricultural country and our agriculture sector is mostly driven by smallholder farmers. And with, with the area where we work in, these are rural areas where farming is the biggest source of income. Currently, we work around the Luangwa ecosystem, and most recently, we started working around the Kafir ecosystem. So I'll give you firstly the scenario around the Luangwa ecosystem. Around the Luangwa ecosystem, we've got about four national parks, which is the North Luangwa, South Luangwa, Luambe National Park, and Lukosuzi National Park. So our objective was to work around these sensitive areas to conserve the biodiversity in these areas. Around the Luangwa ecosystem, we work in three provinces. On the eastern side, there's the eastern province. And then on the western side, of the long ecosystem, there's Muchinga and Central Province. The program is implemented across these three provinces in the districts that are around these sensitive areas. And then on the cafe ecosystem, we are in Itezi and Mumbwa. These are districts that 
uh, around the cafe ecosystem and are sensitive. That's where the pressure for conserving the biodiversity is most needed in terms of conserving these areas of the forest, uh, the agricultural expansion, and the wildlife. Around these areas, Komako has worked with farmers over the past 20 years. Around the Luango ecosystem, Komako has been in existence for more than 20 years, since around 2003. We started with 1,000 farmers. Currently, in the Luango ecosystem, we've got over 170,000 farmers. So this is something that we've built over the years based on the approaches that we're implementing and also the relationship with these communities. Thank you so much for that, uh, Edward. Really, it seems so interesting, the landscape that you work in. Are there problems of food security in these areas? Yes, food security is one of the biggest challenges that these farmers are facing in these areas. Because of the farming practices are being implemented, the market provisions that is not available, these challenges are predominant in these areas. That's why looking at the Kumako model, the way Kumako is structured and the way we do our work, we do our work in the sense that Kumako is in twofold. There's the extension side and the business side. The extension side mostly deals with farmer trainings, extension service, and all those related activities to build farmer capacity. And the business side deals with of taking the product that the farmer grows and possibly sells to, to Komako. So we've got a system where we train farmers to grow in a more eco-friendly manner and also provide market to these farmers. We train farmers to take care of their nature, be the custodian of their environment, and then provide market based on what they grow and the crops that we are encouraging to grow these farmers. And then from that market that we're providing, we are in the business of making sure that the farmer benefits from these efforts, whereby they increase their yields, where they will have something to sell to the market and something that they will also have for them to have adequate food supply in the household. And also additionally, to provide market to these farmers for that extra income that comes to the household. That's how Komako is also trying to address the issues of food security and also provide different type of trainings in terms of managing post-harvest losses, providing more nutritious food crops, uh, introducing farmers to diverse nutritious food varieties for them to be food secure at household level. Thank you, Edward. I'm trying to understand the link between the wildlife conservation and the farmer work that you're doing. Is it that the agricultural yields are falling or is it that farmers are unable to, to sell their produce is that leading to for farmers cutting down forests? You know, where is the problem? You can help us understand this. Initially, Komako was built on the premise of training or converting poachers to farmers. That was the premise on where Komako started from. Poacher transformation remains a very key component of our work. So challenges have always been around poaching, expanding of fields, indiscriminate cutting of trees, unsustainable agricultural practices. So these have been challenges that Komako saw and we needed to address. Firstly, around wildlife poaching. Komako has got a program that is called Poacher Transformation Program. We, together with the communities, the community leadership, go in the communities to identify through the community structures that are in place using the chief the headmen identify to sensitize the community to say those who are willing to surrender their guns, they'll be trained and provided with different inputs, agricultural inputs, alternative livelihood training, such as gardening, carpentry, beekeeping, for them to abandon the poaching activities they are into. Komako provides that platform. So those guns are surrendered to the Department of National Parks who are responsible for wildlife management. And then Komako takes up the responsibility of training these poachers with different alternative livelihoods and also provide markets to the produce that they realize. That is one area we are trying to address these challenges of poaching through the poacher transformation program. And also through the indiscriminate cutting of trees in terms of 
just where farmers expanding their fields or where there's logging in the communities or where they, they harvest firewood in a, in a not sustainable manner. Komaku has, with the communities and with the help of, of other partners, developed community conservation areas in these chiefdoms where a chiefdom identifies an area where they will say, this is our community forest. Through the guidelines of the law that have been set in establish a community forest, the communities register that as a community forest where they can, one, realize the carbon revenue. Two, it can be an area of honey production where these communities are supported with beehives and then they set up their beehives in those areas. Through those beehives, they're able to realize extra revenue that possibly they wouldn't have realized from the destruction of cutting down of those trees. And also but a product line of caterpillars. If the farmers maintain those trees, there'll be an abundance of caterpillars, caterpillar worms that Komako is supporting delicious uh, delicacy here in Zambia. And also we've got a product line under the dried mushroom. So these are what mushrooms that women would go out and pick supply to Komako. That's another product line that we've introduced. So these are some of the mitigation measures that we've put in place for the communities to appreciate and benefit from the forest uh, product or from the forest that lies within their communities. Edward, this is all very interesting interventions you are doing. What I'm unable to understand is the problem. Is the problem poaching, which is an illegal activity, and people poach because there is a wildlife trade and people will buy the parts of the animals? Or is it because people have forced to deforest because... They need more land to grow their food or they need, they're cutting down trees because they need the firewood for cooking. That is where, where I'm struggling. Help me understand this. The main problem is food security and, and stable household income. That's the biggest problem. That's a problem that will lead a farmer to go and poach. That's a farmer that will lead someone to cut down trees to make charcoal. That's a problem for them to realize that revenue. So as Komako, we've identified the problem being the household income levels and the food security at household level. Those are the biggest problem that lies within these communities. If those are addressed, a farmer won't go out to go and poach an animal because he knows that's illegal and the risks that are involved in it. If there's an alternative that is introduced at that farmer and that household, the farmer will obviously go for the alternative that is safer and is risk-free. So the problem lies around food security and income uh, security at household level. That's where the problem lies. Okay, I understand this. Now it is becoming clearer. But for centuries, farmers in these regions must have coexisted with wild animals. Is this problem of more recent origin? The coexistence of farmers in these communities with wildlife has been there in the longest time. But due to different challenges that are being faced in these communities, due to changing weather pattern, and uh, obviously due to the increase of population in these areas, animal habitat and human habitat is somehow threatened. The coexistence is not as good as it was back in the day. Thanks for explaining the nature of the problem, Edward. I'm wondering, what is the role of climate change in all this? Yeah, currently, what farmers are experiencing is a change in climate. Effects on these communities. Climate change has had different... One, I would say, having El Nino instances almost each other year. And also floods in some of these flood-prone areas, especially within the valleys that are close to national parks. And that also has brought another burden of food insecurity in these communities. So as Komako, we've come up with different interventions to address these climate challenges by introducing different kinds of interventions that speak directly to agriculture, speak directly to crop management, speak directly to coexistence with wildlife, and also speak directly to just household income and market access. So we've come up with different interventions that I'll talk about as we discuss, as we move on in our discussion.
Edward, these weather problems that you talked about, are they specific to the regions of Zambia that you are working in? Or are you seeing different problems coming up in different parts of Zambia? Yeah, no, these problems are almost everywhere in Zambia. It's almost a similar situation. The erratic rainfalls, flash floods, they're almost everywhere in Zambia. And that's why Elia mentioned, we've been trying to expand to different areas so that farmers can access what Kumako is, is providing. Initially, we were just in the eastern part of the Longa Valley. Now we are in the western part. And now we are, we've even gone further to Cafe Ecosystem. We want as many farmers as possible to access these uh, facilities that Kumako is, is promoting and different interventions that for other farmers can benefit. Because we've seen this is a national problem where farmers have got challenges on different aspects, especially on the impact of climate change. Thanks, Edward. Let me go back to the point that you made about enlisting exposures. Sounds obviously very interesting. I'm tempted to think, is it even possible? I mean, were there legal issues? Yes, this is a, an intervention where it's a committee-led intervention. So we begin by sensitizing the leadership in these communities, having the chiefs as the custodians of this land and the head of these communities. They are the entry point for us to engage. We engage not in an effort to enforce the law. We are not law enforcers. We are there to facilitate that farmers get the best from their natural resources. So we go out, sensitize the farmers, and sensitize them about the benefits and the risks that they surely already know of poaching. So we insist on the benefits of this transformation, the benefits that come with them enlisting under this program. Because what the agreement has been with our partner, with the Department of National Parks, they surrender their hunting weapons willingly without any recourse or without any punishment moving forward. So they surrender these weapons willingly with the mindset that they will be part of the transformation program that will benefit them in the long run and that will be environmentally friendly. So these farmers, these exporters are sensitized. They hand in their weapons willingly to the committee uh, local leadership which are handed over to the Department of National Parks. All this is facilitated by Comac, and then those are enlisted in the transformation program. Edward, the other thing that I found interesting was that you organize people in cooperatives, producer groups. Now, these cooperatives and producer groups already exist under the chiefs, or you have to go and form them yourself? Because, you know, forming groups is not easy. And you have to also ensure equitable participation of different tribes, in your case, and women... Just tell us a little bit about how you do that. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Komako works through community structures. And these community structures are the entry point to our work. So the formation of cooperatives is facilitated by Komako. When we go into a community or into a chiefdom, we engage leadership, the chief who is a custodian, the headmen, the headwomen. We engage them about how Kumako works. Within those structures, the headmen and the chief, they sensitize. We go out in the field to sensitize the farmers about the benefits of Kumako. Within them themselves, once they come together as a community, they decide on forming a cooperative. So that cooperative will have an executive, an independently elected executive. That independent elected executive forms the cooperatives that will be legally registered under the Zambian law. That farmer cooperative will have structures within itself, structures that deal with business, structures that deal with extension. Within those structures, they'll identify lead farmers, those that will spearhead farmer sensitization, farmer training. So those that have been identified are further trained by Comac to be act as committee extension workers. Because we can have maybe one or two extension workers in that chiefdom, but we need the ownership of those farmers to spearhead the extension works. Within those cooperatives, they form what are called producer groups. So a producer group will have 15 to 20 members within its structures. That producer group will belong to one farmer cooperative in that chiefdom. So we have several farmer groups for them to easily meet, discuss, train, and they are equipped with different material. We have what we call a better life book. 
that entails all what Komako preaches, the extension like the farming calendars, what you need to do, crop management, post service management. Each group has got its own manual and its own leader. All these leaders are intensively trained by ex our extension staff under Komako to spearhead the extension activities in these communities. What Komako is all about is the ownership by the community. We want the community to own Komako at their level. And also the sustainability part of it. We need to make sure that these farmers have got their own structures and be able to conduct all these conservation activities and extension activities within their communities and on their own with the oversight of Komako. So that is how these cooperatives come into play. And that's how they help us in terms of training of farmers, dissemination of, of information, implementation of different activities, distribution of different inputs through these structures. They are the backbone of what Komako is achieving now. I love this philosophy and this approach of community-led development. I've uh, studied this extensively in Bangladesh and seen how transformative it can be. Edward, I wonder if we could now get into some specific interventions that uh, you've been involved with. Things like cook stoves, are these uh, given out to people in the communities or any other sustainable agricultural practices that you've uh, introduced or things like beekeeping? Could you tell us a little bit about those aspects? These inputs are given to farmers for free because we want them to be to reach a stage where they are self-sustaining and be able to grow from where we've supported them to a different level. Instances, interventions like a cook stove. These are few efficient stoves that are given to farmers for free. We call them rocket stoves. They're being developed with a partner from another project. These are interventions that are community-led. All the cookstove parts are provided for free. The farmer's role is to help identify where this stove will sit and also mod some kind of bricks just to make this stove operational. So these are given for free. And currently, with over 110,000 stoves that have been constructed in Eastern Province, in Eastern Province alone, we've given out this stove free. This also applies the same way to, to beehives. Beehives are given to farmers where we identify areas for pressure and where communities need to protect certain areas and where certain farmers, and a good example is the exporters have been transformed and we've identified beekeeping as one of the interventions and one of the alternative livelihoods that they can take up. They are given for free. This is free input that is given to these farmers. But this is not really for free because it's being supported by our other partners that see the need for these farmers to, to adopt other alternative livelihoods and also on the household income and food security. So these beehives are, are given out for free, including the training materials that, that we provide these farmers. The training materials in terms of the book, posters, the trainings that are being conducted, farmers don't pay anything towards these interventions. So even the sustainable kind of hose that they use for minimum tillage, those are distributed for free to farmers. Input for agroforestry under our agroforestry program, because we are promoting a, an agroforestry tree called Grisidia sepium. It's a nitrogen uh, fixing plant that goes very, very fast growing. So we provide these inputs in terms of degradable plastic sleeves, the seeds for free to these farmers. So at these interventions are implemented and farmers see the benefits for them to conserve their surrounding and also to build on what we've started them from. So that's the whole idea of these interventions from the Kumago side of view. Very interesting. I wonder if I could ask you a little bit more about the cook stoves. What problem are they solving? Is it that it's the fuel that they use? Tell us a little bit about the cook stoves. Yeah, no, thank you for that. These cook stoves, we are solving the challenge of deforestation, the issue of charcoal and the issue of tree cutting for them to be using uh, for the home consumption. Because basically in a year, a farmer will cut maybe over 60 to 70 trees, big trees. These are 30, 40 year old trees to sustain them for their fuel in that year. With these cook stoves, they don't require big logs of tree for them to, to operate. They use small twigs 
And one intervention in terms of the supply of those small trees has been the Grisidia sepium that we're providing for the agroforestry. Because at some point, those agroforestry trees, they grow and they need to be coppiced in some way for them to provide enough light for the crops. So those twigs that come from the agroforestry trees within their, their fields act as fuel for the fuel-efficient cookstoves because they'll require small twigs for them to operate efficiently and provide enough energy for the household to function. We've provided these cookstoves and also provided an alternative to the source of energy which is the agroforestry tree that is, is being planted within their farm plot because these farm fields are mostly close to the household. Instead of them walking long, long distances to access small trees, they can access them within their fields. So we are addressing the issue of deforestation, the cutting down of these trees indiscriminately and not using them efficiently, taking away the three-stone traditional fire from the communities, providing them with this alternative that is efficient and uses less firewood, which is just small trees that they can easily access within the household. And these farmers are encouraged to create woodlots within their households based on what they're provided with from this Grisidia sepium. These woodlots, one, they provide firewood to them. And also, when that time comes, when these plants are flowering, they're providing seed, that seed is again sold to Komako by the farm. Because Komako wants to expand in terms of this agroforestry program. Want to expand farmers, encourage more farmers to plant more trees. That seed is again sold back to Komako. And that, in return, provides an alternative to the farmer in terms of revenue and household income. Edward, fascinating. I wanted to ask you two questions. One is that you talked a little bit about the caterpillar delicacy. That one I really want to know more about. And then one thing I want to understand is, apart from beekeeping and agroforestry, what is the traditional crop that farmers anyway grow here? And is do you have an intervention aimed at increasing the yield of those crops? Yeah, thank you for that, Sanjoy. I'll start with the caterpillars. This is mostly predominant on the western side of the Rwanga Valley. That is around Muchinga province. And caterpillars thrive where there are trees. In an effort for us to continue promoting tree protection and also providing an alternative for this household, mostly women-driven, because the caterpillar harvesting is women-driven. Where they go out, they harvest these caterpillars. As Komok, we identified that to be another area where these women in these households, they can increase their income by providing market for these caterpillars. We dry them, they're packaged, and they're supplied to our local chain stores here, here in the cities. This is a program that has been running, I think, for the past four years. We go out, we buy these caterpillars, we dry them, they're packaged, then they are, they are provided on the local market. This also applies to the wild mushrooms. So these wild mushrooms are also bought from these communities, dried and packaged, and also supplied on the local market in these chain stores. Edward, tell us a little bit about a recipe with the dried caterpillars. That's interesting. <laughs> Our traditional meal here in Zambia is corn. I think it's quite pop in, in some areas, ugari in some other countries. So we, we call it shima. Uh, mostly is prepared using maize meal or, or cassava meal. We eat that with the caterpillar. So these caterpillars are fried with either tomatoes and onion because they are dry. So they first you, they just soak them a bit, they become softer, and then they are fried with tomato and onion. That's all. Ugali with fried anything is so tasty, and I'm really looking forward to this. You, you were talking about the mushrooms. Yes, it's almost the same with with the mushrooms. We create these booking points or selling points within these communities. We identify buyer within the community, buys from the women. This comes to our plant because Komako has got three hubs currently, one in Chipata in Eastern Province, two in uh, Serenje in uh, Central Province, and then the new one in Mumbwa. These hubs, that's where the manufacturing of these different products takes place, the manufacturing and also processing takes place. And then we've got other meals like in Chinsali, where rice processing is being done. In Nyimba, we do the honey processing. So we've got all these processing plants around the country where once the crop buying time comes, all what we buy goes to these different places for processing. So this same applies to mushrooms. We've got drying plants in these areas. Once we buy the mushroom, the drying process takes place. The packaging is done. And these, uh, these products are sent to different stores within the country under the It's World product brand. 
Right. These additional items, of course, add to farm incomes, but is the traditional crop maize and rice, maize because you mentioned Diwali, is that the traditional agricultural crop of these farmers? Yes, almost all the households within these communities, they'll grow maize because that's the traditional crop and it's a traditional crop and it's one that every household should have in terms of their food availability. Comaco promotes these crops, maize, soybeans, groundnuts, cowpeas, beans. These products that Comaco promotes, they feed into our production and processing lines based on the products that we manufacture. So the products that we manufacture include peanut butter, a product, a blend of maize meal and soy, which is called yummy soy. Another one that is a blend of cowpeas and soy, which is called jumbo combo, honey, this mushroom, the caterpillar. So some of these products, the rice, all these products that we promote, they feed into our processing lines. And as we move forward, we are trying to develop as many different product lines to support some of the other products that farmers are growing. But for now, all these products, the maize, the soybeans, the rice, the groundnuts, the cowpeas, they all feed into our processing lines. And these are the major crops that farmers grow in our operation areas. And these delicious products, they have to be sold. And you mentioned right at the beginning of the podcast, you know, you mentioned the word market linkages. Can you tell us, you know, how you sell these products and how you bring the money back to the communities? Yeah, Komako is not into profit making. Komako's goal is conservation and ensuring food and income security at household level. The marketing aspects, we've got a logistics operation section that business and operation section that deals with market access for farmers. Right now, we are planning for our next crop buying season. This crop buying season happens in all areas. We usually have a target of buying from about 70,000 farmers annually. That's our target. The market access is that we use the community-based structures, aggregate these crops, aggregate the crop, buy from the farmers, and then this is brought back to our, to our processing hubs. The areas where we're buying from, an ordinary business which is structured to make profit can't really access these areas. We have to go to areas that are barely accessible for us to provide that market to the farmers because we've made a pledge to them. As they have pledged to conserve, we've also made the pledge for them to provide these markets. We go to areas where an ordinary standard business organization wouldn't go because we are not operating on the premise of making profit. We are operating on the premise of having that farmer access market and also having those communities conserve their biodiversity within their areas. We go to areas where we have to make sure farmers access these markets. From there, we send out our trucks that come back to our plants with, with the raw material, and these products are processed within our plants. So within our plants, we do the rice, we do the, the peanut butter, we do the honey, we do the, the soy, the yummy soy. We do all these products. And then these products are distributed countrywide in the different chain stores, local stores. The revenue from those, from those sales are plowed back in the operations. Edward, really interesting what you're saying about how you create these market linkages for the farmers and plow the profits back in. What is the impact on the social and economic lives of the farmers themselves of these linkages that you create? Yeah, initially, most of these communities, they didn't have proper premium markets coming to their communities. The businesses that go out to buy crop from the farmers, I would say, for lack of a better term, exploitative. Komako has gone out to provide these premium markets to these farmers, thereby providing premium price compared to the market price. And most of these premium prices are attributed to different achievements within these communities. We do what we call compliance ratings or compliance audits across all communities on different parameters that mostly qualify some of these communities to get even up to 20% more of a market price from what they would get from the market. Comaco makes sure that these farmers are getting the premium price for their produce 
these structures within the communities are rewarded for their efforts. Because what we see achieve is an, an impact on the household income, which has increased by almost twofold from the time Komago started providing markets to these households. And this is monitored through different processes that we've put in place. The food security trainings that we've, we've, we've provided, we're encouraging farmers, we're going to provide premium markets to you. You don't have to sell everything that you have because once you sell everything, there'll be food unavailability in your, in your household. All these interventions are providing the overall impact of one, a stable household income and increased food availability at household level. And also translating that to other interventions that are related to the farmer in terms of conservation, reduce impact, increase increase yields because of uh, better better farming practices, uh, increase yields due to uh, the adoption of agro agroforestry. Because most of these farmers they can't afford a bag of fertilizer. So what's the alternative? It's better farming practices, better agriculture uh, agroforestry farming initiatives using VCDSPM. So all that has translated to better yields, better yields which again translate better household income and also providing a better food security at household level. What we have heard so far from Edward is the man-human conflict and the link between climate and biodiversity, which we read about in research documents and we read about in books. But here is a voice from the ground which really explains where the problem comes from. The problem comes because yields are falling and farmers do not have ability to sell whatever they produce that causes them to face hunger and their children to face hunger and then they take up poaching and you know cut down trees because they don't have firewood for cooking food and this is the problem that Edward and his colleagues are trying to solve they put the farmer in the center of the solution and they're giving him or her inputs, inputs to grow new types of food and sell them in new markets and bring that money back. And Jadip, what I really find interesting, you know, coming from a business background that you and me come from, is that they're using business techniques, but they are achieving the impact because they are constructed as a non-profit organization. That is, they have a wider range of stakeholders to whom they have a pledge to. I too was struck by that, Shanjai. As I said earlier, it reminded me a bit of research I've done on BRAC's approach in Bangladesh, where again, there are some parallels here of engaging the community, putting communities and farmers at the heart of their solutions, thinking about livelihoods, how do you make this sustainable for the farmers, increasing their incomes uh, through market linkages, also the processing of the food as Edward was describing, in their factories, making the peanut butter, and so on. So value addition happens. And then the revenues from that cloud back in Edward's terms, cloud back into uh, achieving a scale in their mission. So it really is very interesting how approaches you might see in the private sector of growing your business, scaling your business are applied here, but to a social objective. And Edward, since you started, you've already expanded beyond your original regions. Tell us a little bit about the number of farmers, the number of communities that you've worked with. Yeah, since we started, the joining of farmers has been incremental. And this has solely been read, led by the communities them, themselves. They lead in the recruitment of more farmers. Currently, we've got over 253,000 farmers under the program. We work with 110 farmer cooperatives in 93 chiefdoms across the landscape. So all this has been necessitated by the committee's willingness to come to Komako to say, please, can you also bring these services, this Komako that you're doing in other areas? Because we have seen the benefits from those other communities. We also want to benefit from these interventions. Our communities need this. We also need to protect our environment, need to protect our, our soils, we need to protect our forest, we need to protect our wildlife. This has totally been led by the community's willingness to be part of the, of the program. Edward, I wonder if you could now tell us a little bit about your partnership with CV, Stockholm International Water Institute. What role do they play in your initiatives? Our partnership with CIV was under the, the TIARA project, where we, we had identified 
a few needs in terms of making sure that our delivery of pharma extension services is efficient. And this was done through the support of different interventions that we had put across, some of which included the integration of our pharma databases. Because dealing with 250,000 farmers, having a database of 250,000 farmers is, is quite a big task. And under the chair project, we see we, we identified this as a need that we needed the support from them, financially and technical support. They helped us in updating and cleaning this database and the integration because we are in the digitization process. We have looked at where things in the world is going right now. We are moving in the digital world and we don't want our farmers to be left behind. We want them to be onboarded on this digital path that the world is on. And also to make our implementation of different activities more efficient in the sense that farmers should be able to access data that is coming in from the field and be able to make informed decisions at community level based on their area. So under the chair project, there was a process of digitization of these feedback mechanisms through the procurement of tablets for these cooperatives to be able to see results, be able to interpret, plan, and make decisions based on those results. And also the capacity building, the capacity building of these pharma cooperatives, because we saw the need for them to be trained in this transition that we've taken up. We want the farmers to be able to relate and be able to interpret these results and be able to make informed decisions. Because at the end of the day, the resource is managed at that community level. Kumako's role is to facilitate, to make sure that they are doing that, to provide an oversight. So capacity building was one of the areas that we focused on in terms of uh, the chair support to make sure that those conservation activity practices, the minimum chillage, water retention, residue retention, agroforestry, fire breaks, at farmer level, those farmers that are complying, the committees are able to monitor and be able to track progress of their farmers. So it builds into the overall objective of our sustainable land management practices that are being taught to these farmers in these communities. And also another aspect was on the digitization of the farm plots. We are working on making sure that each and every farmer's field is digitized in the sense that we get GPS points from on all the boundaries of a, of a farmer's field. This builds on different monitoring activities that we foresee in the near future and the possibilities of different carbon projects coming in for farmers to benefit from the sustainable agricultural land practices that are being conducted on their field. So under the partnership with CIWI, these were some of the interventions that we supported and we saw the need for farmers to, to move from one step to the next where benefits can be realized more and also the soils in terms of the agriculture are better for the farmers so that better yields are achieved, better incomes and better food security at household level. What about the resources that you need for your operations? What is your annual budget? How much money do you raise? In terms of raising finance, earlier mentioned, we've got the, the business side that supports the processing lines and the, and the market for farmers. And then we've got the extension side that supports the farmer extension activities. So in terms of farmer extension activities, we require annually about six to seven million dollars. And then for the business side to support the crop, it's around five million dollars to support adequate farmers also to meet our production targets. This support comes in different forms from different partners. Besides our business generating some revenue, we also uh, get support from different partners, different uh, funding agencies, different uh, philanthropic support, and also different lenders. We access some of the monies that go into the business to meet our crop buying from lenders. But the challenge has been in terms of finding cheaper finance. If we find cheaper finance, we're able to support more, more farmers in terms of market access. We try by all means to look for finance locally and outside, outside the country. 
to see how we can meet some of these obligations that we have with the, with the farmer and also to continue the extension services that we provide to our, to our farmers. And when you say cheaper, I mean, who are your current partners and what did you ask from them? So we've got partners that support specific activities. Some partners who support certain activities in specific areas where us and them have identified a need to support. So we have a project running maybe in the eastern side that supports certain interventions. And then another support is more broad that supports possibly the whole the whole landscape or they are specific to supporting agroforestry activities or specific to supporting carbon activities or they are specific to supporting agroforestry activities. Some are specific to supporting the capacity building of the farmer cooperatives in terms of building capacity for a more sustainable future for these farmer cooperatives to be able to take up some of the roles that Komako is currently burdened with. Edward, is this a mixture of grants and debt? Yes, it is. This is a mixture of grants and debts. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the carbon project? Umako's carbon project initially started around 2012. Maybe let me give you a brief background of where we're coming from and where we are now. So we started around 2012 uh, with an initiative from World Bank. So we were approached by World Bank. They identified that all these activities that you're doing could potentially be developed in a carbon project. We were doing the business as usual, doing our station activities, our conservation activities, wildlife, forest, uh, and soils. We developed our first carbon project in 2012 in, in Eastern Province, in nine chief domes. From there, we generated about 250,000 credits around 2015. That was our first monitoring period. And the World Bank bought all those uh, carbon revenue units. And then from there, we continued with our carbon projects. So our carbon project is, is in twofold. The first one fo focuses on the red, which is the forest carbon. And then the second one focuses on sustainable agricultural land management, which is the sound, which focuses on the practices on farmer level. At farmer level, look at uh, the minimum tillage, uh, the composting, uh, the firebreaks, the agroforestry, all these practices, uh, practices that are being implemented at farmer level. That's another component of the carbon project. So currently we've had three verifications, all in Eastern Province. Right now we've got about 1.4 million hectares under community forest management. That's in the east, west, and south of Komako. So that is under the red, red project. And under the sustainable agricultural land management, we are doing the same. We've got over 170,000 hectares under sustainable agricultural land management in all the areas. Currently, we are undergoing a verification for the western side of, of the Luanga Valley for the red and some components for our project. So this will be the fourth verification. And we're also developing another carbon project in Komoko South in the Kafir ecosystem. Possibly it should be ready around 2025, 2026, somewhere. These are the carbon projects that we've been developing over the years. So far, from, from the three verifications, about 4.9 million has gone into the communities in Eastern Province. 4.9 million dollars has gone into the communities. The communities have seen the impact and the benefits of these carbon projects. And now there's pressure on Komako from the communities to implement carbon projects in all the chiefdoms. So again, that requires finance in terms of de developing. Because Komako's approach is to make sure that the communities get the maximum benefits from these uh, carbon uh, projects. That's why they get the bigger share from the carbon projects based on the growth that is realized from these sales. Right now, we are also developing another agroforestry carbon project in partnership with ECON, a subsidiary of Rabobank. We've onboarded just about 110,000 farmers where we've digitized their farm fields. And this will be done. The, the methodology that they are employing would be using remote sensing in terms of carbon accounting. So we've onboarded 110,000 farmers, the Agroforest Acorn Carbon Project. We are looking at different revenues that a farmer can benefit. And under this project, 80% of the revenue will go to the farmer, the indiv individual farmer. We want to make sure that a farmer's streams of revenue are widened in a more sustainable manner. 
for them to continue conserving and also having the best benefit that they can get from these natural resources. I mean, in a world where voluntary carbon markets are still kind of discredited, the story is terrific. Edward, we have come to the end of the podcast. Do you have any questions for your hosts? Ah, <laughs> what I would request from you is uh, continue doing the good work that you're doing. Continue putting some of the projects like ours out there so that we were able to reach as many people as, as possible so that they can see what program like Comaco is, is doing and also the support that we're getting from you. And also like to thank uh, Siwi under the Terra project for this opportunity we've been given to show our project and also work with them and achieve great, great results. And I feel we can still achieve more with different partnerships that we can establish moving, moving forward. Thank you. Thank you, Edward. And if people want to get in touch with you, how should they? First, they can go to our website, which is www.itsworld.org. And if you want to get in touch with me, my email address is izulu at itsworld.org. It's world as in I-T-S-W-I-L-D dot org. Thank you. Thank you very much, Edward. Thank you so much, Edward. It's been wonderful talking to you and really so fascinating the work you're doing in Zambia with the farmers and their communities. Thank you so much. If you like this podcast, do visit us on regainparadise.org, regainparadise.com. Uh, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn and you can also subscribe to these podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Google, Apple and YouTube.